Ten miles from Bosler, Wyoming, sits a ranch with a rather unusual feature. A well over 350 feet deep. A miracle well whose builder was told that he would never strike water there. And yet, he did. To quote from a write-up about Pat McGuire's story in The Missing Link, quote, This part of Wyoming is high desert where water is scarce. Most of the moisture is from the heavy snow that falls in the winter. When he went to the bank to borrow funds to drill the well, they laughed at him. The well is the most enduring and mysterious element to this entire story. At its height, the McGuire Ranch pumped 5,000 gallons of water out of that well per day through 13,000 feet of aluminum pipe used to grow ovular patches of barley, six in total. According to Leo Sprinkle, quote, Pat McGuire has worked at his well and irrigation system for several years. He has created a huge garden in a mile-wide basin of grass and sagebrush. He seems to have little to gain and much to lose by any unfavorable publicity. Again, this well seemed like a miracle, and yet Pat claimed that he had help. Under the guidance of the Archangel Michael, whom he'd been abducted by multiple times and through various visions, a being that looked much more alien than Angel instructed Pat to place three rocks at the dig site to fly the Israeli flag, and if he did all this, the aliens would make it happen. He was shown visions of domed cities on his property, cities of the future where people would come when the end times arrived. Quote, the two cities look like the city of Jerusalem, adobe, domed buildings, etc. There would be enough water to support a population of 125,000 people per city. Within the jumble of 1980s ufology, which is a time period rife with disinformation, featuring secret crash retrieval programs headed by a council of magicians, underground alien bases where secret wars were fought, Roswell, 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 and boatloads of paranoia. Within all of that, Pat McGuire's story fell through the cracks. Today, we're going to tell his story in full, from his first UFO experiences and abductions to the building of the well, his failed bids for governor, the formation of a polygamous cult, and ultimately, Pat's downfall. You'll also be hearing from his son, David Rydell, throughout the course of this episode. And if you are going to tell this story, be sure to handle it with care. If you've heard the name Pat McGuire in the last year, there are two main reasons for that. Part of Pat's story was featured in David Politis' latest documentary, Missing 411, The UFO Connection. If you are a listener to this podcast, you know exactly how I feel about that documentary. The well plays a prominent role. The second is an article that was published in HuffPost recently titled, My Dad Was a Famous Alien Abductee. I Thought He Was a Joke. Now I'm not so sure. I asked the author of that article, David Rydell, what inspired him to write it. I've been working on a book 
Uh, I'm a, a master's student right now, so I'm working on kind of my thesis and book about my father's experience and sort of how alien abduction narratives are passed in, mm-hmm. in kind of an oral history sort of lens. And what happened was the news broke of the the UFO whistleblower, David Grush. And I had a professor reach out to me who sort of um, has been uh, shepherding me through some of this uh, process. Uh, shout out to Ariel Zebrak. What's up? Um, <laughs> and she said, you should write something about this. Like you should, you should do something. And it didn't escape me that my father's case is sort of, I wouldn't say unknown, but, mm-hmm. but it's definitely since the early eighties kind of really fallen back into the, uh, to the noise of a lot of these cases. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, I'll write the piece. No. And I knew full well that once something told me that once this, once I wrote this, then it was going to have this sort of like snowball effect that people are going to be like, especially locally, um, it, and bringing back all of this old, like all of the old stories, all of the old people, um, people texting me and all this stuff. So I, I knew that when that was going to go down like that, that when I was going to write and publish this piece, that it was going to sort of open this box a little bit. And um, and then I sent it to you because I was like, if I know one person who who's going to be interested, it's going to be Rob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Pat McGuire was born on August 15th, 1942. He was raised in Wheatland, Wyoming, and lived there for most of his life. He graduated from Wheatland High in 1961 and worked as a Big Laramie River outfitter and guide for 14 years. Wyoming plays a big part in this story. And here's David. Wyoming plays such a almost an amplifying effect to to my father's story because, I mean, it is it is still cowboy through and through. And even transplants who come to Wyoming, I feel like don't that cowboy as well, because that's one of the perks of coming to Wyoming is is the cowboy, the cowboy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and growing up, that's what Pat um, was. I mean, he was a cowboy, even even in the the harsh, most harshest of times, he was still sort of one of us. Right. And it, it's funny how that's kind of a it's a double edged sword for a lot of the people that like live here is is sort of the environment requires you to to be this tough you know uh uh do it yourself um you know maybe a little bootstrap cowboy bootstrap right a little bit mm-hmm. and and then on the flip side there's that strong community still that um you know doesn't want to see other people suffer and still um, has this interesting kind of play with other people's lives where they don't want to interject too much, but they also feel very bad when things bad things are happening to people, right? So it's it has this this weird kind of double play. And you know, my father sort of finds himself in uh, you know, born and raised here in Wyoming, raised on a a, a farm and ranch, um, and being brought up that he's going to have his own farm and ranch, just like his brothers and his cousins and everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. And that that's almost like on autopilot until, until it's not right. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just reading about it, it. Reading about Wyoming was like, it was a very, 
you, I could relate, but it was just something definitely out of my depth where it's like, okay, yeah, this is an alien world to me, man. This is this, <laughs> yeah, alien I, to the, that's the aliens themselves. <laughs> yeah, I had someone say that. They said, if aliens were going to show up anywhere, I've driven through Wyoming. That's where they're going to show up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it, it definitely has that vibe to it a little bit, um, especially when you start getting, I mean, Wyoming's filled with nothing for the most part, but especially when you start really getting out into the middle of nowhere, um, it, it starts really having that vibe. Yeah, no, uh, I, I, I like I could picture it in my head and it's like, yeah. And then it's like seeing, you know, some of the pictures of the ranch and all that stuff. It's like, oh, wow, this really does feel like the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's how it was. I mean, I grew up in Bosler, which is mm-hmm. 10 miles from um, Pat's Ranch. And it, it in Bosler is 20 ish miles from Laramie, which is a population of 30,000. So we're, we're sort of out there in the middle of nowhere, either in the, the wind and the weather and the winter can really just have that isolating effect. And it's almost cliche at this point to be like, you know, of course, a farmer is going to be visited, right? Like, uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the, uh, uh, independence of everything, right? It's the, yeah. it's the farmer that, but I mean, that isolation is real and, those those crystal clear nights out in Wyoming with zero light pollution lend to interesting things happening in those skies for sure. By all accounts, Pat was a normal guy, except for one thing. He would have intense bouts of deja vu, visions so powerful that they made him question whether he was seeing future moments. One such incident occurred in 1968. There was a moment when Robert Kennedy was getting into a car. He and Pat locked eyes, and a profound sense overcame him. He, quote, sensed tragedy in his life, end quote. As Jacques Vallée notes in his book, Dimensions, a casebook of alien contact, similar statements were made by Fernando Sesma that same year. Sesma was a Spanish clerk who claimed contact with extraterrestrials going back to 1954. Quote, the inhabitants of planet Wolf 424 are among us in human form and with false identities. They are far superior to us and very peace-loving. I am in permanent contact with them. They either write to me or call me. We have meetings, end quote. This two-way communication was sparked by an incident where, according to Sesma, a saucer threw a stone into the university gardens in Madrid. This stone was covered with all sorts of hieroglyphics and Thus, communication was established. Think of this as like the sending stones in Dungeons and Dragons. Same thing. According to journalist Armando Puente, Sesma warned him that Robert Kennedy would be assassinated three months before his death. He also predicted a flap of UFO sightings over Argentinian skies. And Sesma was right. In episode 150, we covered the Night Visitor case. You know, the one in which uh, Maria Elodia Pretzel witnessed a strange figure in David Bowie cosplay enter her family's hotel and make her fall over a couple of times. You remember that one? Well, in that episode, there was a big flap of UFO activity in South America, particularly Argentina, Brazil and Chile. But it didn't just include UFOs. It included sightings of human looking figures that were radiant And very, very human looking. In 1971, Pat would try to get to the bottom of these visions. Uh, 
In October of that year, his brother fell off of a horse and hit his head. As they were set to take him to a Wheatland hospital, Pat was overcome with the sense that his brother had a blood clot and urged emergency staff to take him to Cheyenne instead. An x-ray did in fact reveal a blood clot. This led him to consult a book about saints for some reason to, you know, answer the question of why he was having these visions. And it was shortly after reading this book that the first ideas for the well started to come into his mind. He was told time and again that it would never happen. Everything would change on October 7th, 1973. On that day, Pat, his brothers-in-law Dan, Jim, and sister-in-law Dorothy set out for a week-long hunting trip. They left early that morning, the purple haze of the sun casting its light on the nearby mountains. The fog looked eerie through the first drops of daylight. It was a 300-mile journey across Wyoming to the Tetons. Pat and Dan jumped out of their trucks and trekked up the mountain, stumbling upon last year's fire pit. Soon after, Jim and Dorothy arrived. Despite the thick gray clouds indicating that a storm was coming, all four of them ventured out to hunt. Pat and Jim hugged the pass which snaked along the mountains, bracing themselves on the trees. The forest had grown oddly silent and the two men noticed. Snow began to fall. It was wet and clung to their clothes. Intermittent flashes struck through the falling flakes. The sky swirled above them. A round patch of orange light shone through the gray clouds above. Was it the sun? No, it couldn't be. The sun was setting on the western horizon. Just what was this orange light? Another crack of lightning and the men both looked up. Pat could feel the sensation of being pulled upward, his soul trying to leave his body. Jim just stood there, frozen, looking toward the horizon, and then there was nothing. In the next moment, Jim was walking through a heavy accumulation of snow. Over a foot of snow had fallen. Hell, it was nearly two feet, and it was still coming down hard. The sky above continued to glow an eerie orange. The two of them were lost, and they bickered back and forth about the way back to camp. The sky grew darker with the onset of night, and yet the lightning still guided them. From a vantage point, they were able to see a lake, Lake Dora, which was nine miles away from where they had previously been. Three shots pierced the darkness, and in response, Pat fired three of his own. Three more faint shots came through the storm, and the men moved in the direction. Before long, dim headlights were visible, and the two men ran to the truck to find Dan and Dorothy in the cab. Time was indeed missing. That same year, he bought the farm. What would come to be known as the McGuire Ranch was ten miles east of an old railroad town called Bosler, and it consisted of 12,000 acres. The compulsion to dig the well came with it. The well always seemed to be there, an odd compulsion among others. Other signs started to present themselves around this time. One young man working for the well driller had served in the Middle East with the 82nd Airborne. To quote from Leo Sprinkle's files, quote, he told Pat that the Israelis were good soldiers, and he claimed that his outfit had turned back Israeli soldiers from going into Cairo. 
Pat was surprised at this statement because he had experienced a dream or psychic impression of Jewish soldiers in Egypt. The cattle mutilations came in 1974 in Wyoming, but didn't appear on the ranch until 1976. On August 30th, the first mutilated livestock was found on the ranch. A calf, barely a week old, on the edge of a ravine, missing their ears and nose. Drilling had begun full-time, though every hole seemed to come up empty. It was afternoon when the cow was found by Pat's brother Mark. He climbed down from his tractor and followed him to the carcass. It was fresh and new, the surroundings telling no stories about how the calf ended up there. Patrick sat in his pickup that night, determined to catch who had ever done it, and though they didn't show up that night, they would soon make their appearance. The next night, Mark joined his brother in the truck on watch. They both watched as the day moved into night, the stars of the Milky Way appearing one at a time. As that dark canvas grew darker, light appeared over the ridge, miles in front of them. A light much like a headlight. A headlight that was moving towards them. Pat grabbed his gun and Mark drove forward. They chased the light over the ridge line, watching it land until the light died and the object disappeared. The next day, they found the carcass of another cow. This time, the eyes were missing. The tail was gone, as were the sex organs and nose. And again, no tracks, no viscera, nothing was found. This time he phoned Albany County Sheriff's Deputy Sergeant James Conyers, who photographed the carcass and later shared the photographs of, with Leo Sprinkle. Mark was staying with Patrick nightly now to catch these culprits. The night of September 5th was a dramatic one. A star above fell below. An orange color fell to the ground and moved toward Mark and Pat. A cacophonous cry lifted up into the air as the entire herd cried out. A few minutes later, it was just one that cried, and one that was silenced. The two men drove on towards the object, but it evaded them once more. The next day, the herd was short one cow. The two concocted a plan to snap a picture of this object. They brought a dog out there, too, for added protection. Catching this culprit became a full-time job of its own. Pat would work with the drilling crew during the day and kept watch at night. Their fear grew with each encounter. Choosing to take refuge in the trailer with Bear the dog. The night of September 12th brought with it many answers. Bear had become somewhat of an early warning detection symbol, and when the lights would appear, he would become more uneasy. On this night, Pat and Mark grabbed their flashlights and guns and headed out. The darkness was all-consuming, until they looked into the cattle's eyes. In them, they reflected a fiery light. The sky above them was ablaze, consumed by orange. Five craft hovered above while two had landed below. The crafts on the ground were large and smooth. A row of windows ran around the circumference. What scared them was a group of shadows seen inside, some moving, some looking in their direction. The sight was familiar to Pat. 
the deja vu kicking in again. Both men stumbled into the trailer, Mark having run into the corner of it. Pat locked the door, and the two huddled together around it, holding each other close. The next day, they managed to capture the craft on film. Mark took two pictures with a Polaroid camera. And when they looked at the film, there only appeared a couple of burn spots where the objects had been. With only empty photographs to show for it, they did the only other thing they could think to do. They got another witness. They knocked on the door of Jimmy Ashley, a friend just south of Wheatland. They convinced him to spend the night on the property. They stopped for supplies, and, well, I'll let David explain what happened. He'd tell the story about that they brought, they they were going to, him and his cousin were going to bring a witness out to the UFO's landing on the, on the ranch. And they brought him out and a UFO lands and this friend they bring out in this, in the most odd way, almost falls into a trance with this and walks up to touch it. And he said that this, that the UFO like catches him on fire or not fire is like burst into flames, but sort of this, like, as, as he would describe it, this, it almost like, I don't want to say black fire, but anyways, it like engulfs him and, and, and zips him out of existence mm-hmm. and they flip out and they, they run and they later find this friend wandering around in the, the ditch, like disoriented and has no idea what he's doing there or what just happened. And I remember he, one time I was at the street dance, you know, we have street dances here in Laramie mm-hmm. where they shut down the main streets. Uh, uh, hopefully this is very commonplace because it's a good time. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a Jubilee Day. Kind <laughs> Jubilee of thing. Day, yeah. 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 And I remember he, uh, my father grabbed me one time we were we were talking and he, he pointed that guy out and he said, that's the guy. And I remember that the look in that man's face when he saw Pat pointing at him that there was pure terror in the look. <laughs> and I remember it, like at the time I was just like, this is what is happening right now. Um, but now that I, looking back, it's like, these are such odd interactions. Um, and it was an odd reaction that this man had to, to my father, like pointing at him and recognizing him uh, that he like, he sort of escapes as quickly as he can. Um, and, you know, I want to, I, I do want to say like, Pat was never, he never drank, he never did drugs, and he never had, his temperament was such that he never had outbursts of any sort of uh, strong emotion. Um, if he had any strong emotional reaction, it was laughter when he was like interacting, he was very, very happy to interact with people. Um, and so I, I think it bears saying that sort of the cliche of, of the independence day um farmer drunk and experiencing mm-hmm. these alien abductions was that was certainly not his story he never once in his life ever touched alcohol or drugs and even at till the very end he was very even keel and it, it would be hard to interacting with him that you would you would sense that anything was emotionally wrong there was never any sign at all that like besides aside the, from Aside yeah, the from, outward, you know, after. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, the sort of the outward thing, like, I, I feel like people p- approach homeless people with already a certain sort of expectation 
Mm -hmm. And so maybe something that's normal for one person looks sort of exaggerated with the homeless person. Um, Besides those, those things we met, we, through all the times of me interacting with him from a child to growing up is the things he said were, were, were spoken to us in a very even keel, like, you know, not, um, not some of the stuff you would expect from someone who's mentally ill. I would just say that. The experience affected Mark so much that he was arrested and almost committed to a mental hospital for uh, getting drunk and going on and on about these aliens. Pat returned to Wheatland for the winter, but in April, he was back out on the ranch determined to find water. He hired a local driller, Rick Henderson. Rick worked under the promise that water would be found within 10 days. The days passed and the men were running out of luck. That is until Pat had a moment of deja vu. Having visions of a map that he had seen before, he instructed Rick to drill where the Laramie Mountains met the basin. The driller expressed his skepticism, but he drilled. He initially drilled 275 feet down, and when water failed to materialize, he was prepared to call it quits for the day, but Pat insisted. They drilled down to 350 feet, and when the water failed to come, they did quit for the day. That night, Pat and Rick were huddled in the trailer. The wind blew hard against the structure. As the two were talking, that eerie silence that Pat knew well fell upon them. Someone was outside the trailer. The familiar crunch of foot and snow could be heard running around the trailer. The direction of the footsteps kept changing. A heavy boom hit the walls. Rick Henderson was terrified. He stumbled for safety in the trailer as another boom hit the wall, and then a third. Then the water came. From the empty well water rose i think if it weren't for that well i've always had this decision that if it weren't for this that well my Mm -hmm. father's story sort of fades as it's like maybe a lot of stories do in this situation but that well is so strange and to this day so coveted by the people who own it and like uh, and are using it that it it sort of grants second life to the story and and makes it um very, very strong, as it turned out. For, for the audience, who owns the well now? Yeah, so currently the University of Wyoming owns the land and the well. Um, and the University of Wyoming was the employer of Leo Sprinkle at the time. The university uses it for experimental um, farming and ranching. Uh, a ton of ton of research is being done on that land right now. I've been out there several times since then. The, the water well is still in operation. They're still there, you know, using it, obviously. In October of 1976, Pat would file a report with the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO. UFOs were as regular as water over the ranch. Pat and his wife watched a huge object, size of a football field, hovering for two hours between 3 and 5 a.m., In the spring of 1977, sprinklers were installed by a crew of workers. Pat had informed them of all the strange stuff that had been going on at the ranch. 
and most of them dismissed his words entirely. At around three that afternoon, a fireball flew over the crew, and they became terrified. The object stayed in the area for 25 minutes, as if it were overseeing the project, before it traveled away quickly to the north. As if it were confirmation, Pat heard mysterious footsteps approach the trailer at around the same time. In May of 1978, Pat and five co-workers witnessed a strange craft land on a small ridge nearby as they were laying irrigation pipe. The object stayed for a short period of time before lifting up and disappearing into the sky. The sprinklers became of interest to the UFOs. Often they would land next to them causing outages. On September 25, 1977, Pat was having a rough day with the damn sprinklers, kind of like Ed Walters with his pool pump. They would only run for about 15 minutes at a time, and sometimes even less than that. That night, he set the sprinklers and went to bed. He woke at three in the morning, unable to move. He could sense someone in a chair nearby, and he could hear voices. Alone in the trailer, all he could do was just scream, and he did so for ten minutes before regaining his mobility. When he was finally free, he found that the sprinklers were working just fine, and he could also hear a chair moving. In one particularly disturbing event, Pat's daughter Virginia was found outside one night, standing next to the well without any memory of how she got there. Pat just accepted them as a way of life. Let them watch, he would say. Pat was interviewed by APRO investigator Don Worley, and nearly two years after filing his report, Leo Sprinkle came knocking. The first time that he ever met Pat, he regressed him, right in his kitchen. Sprinkle is the more curious character in the story. Through hypnotic regression, this entire experience takes a very strange turn. Because it was through hypnosis that Pat learned that he had been guided by the Archangel Michael. Mind you, this Archangel Michael looked very much alien. Kind of human looking, but definitely alien. And during one hypnosis session, he learned that in his 1973 hunting experience, he fought in the Yom Kippur War. The Yom Kippur War, also known as the Ramadan War and the October War, was a conflict between Israel and a coalition of Arab states led by Egypt and Syria. Fighting was mostly confined to the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights. This, of course, occurred in October of 1973 same time, Pat had his experience. According to the missing link, quote, when Ariel Sharon was the minister of defense in Israel and even before, Pat was picked up and his spirit placed in Ariel Sharon's body. He was in the six-day war in Israel where Sharon hurt his leg. Pat's leg was also hurt in the same place. Ariel Sharon's spirit was kept on the ship until Pat was brought back. It was during the times he was in Ariel Sharon's body that he learned how to fix tank motors as Sharon was in the tank corps. This was to come in handy later, 
Perhaps it was the whole reason the phenomenon happened. In essence, what this is getting at is when it came to Pat's pumps, he was able to fix them rather easily. Uh, the pumps that uh, pumped the water out as well. After the hypnosis, Pat would call Leo all the time to report constant UFO encounters. Here's David on Leo Sprinkle's influence on this case. Yeah, Leo Sprinkle plays a huge role in this story. Mm-hmm. It's, it, interviewing family members, it, it seems like there's there's two. Everybody who's interacted with Leo Sprinkle in connection to to my father's case, there's sort of two camps. Um, camp one is that Leo Sprinkle is an incredibly affable, compassionate person who didn't charge Pat anything for any of the therapy he gave him. Mm-hmm. And even when things got really tough with my father and Leo Sprinkle still talked to him, still engaged with him, which is more than I can say for my, even myself at, at certain times in my father's life when things got really, really rough. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and, and I'm quite honest about that. I feel like with the article, I was, I was trying to be very honest and, and how I engaged with my father at certain times in, in his life and my life. So at certain times I refused to engage with him. Uh, Leo Sprinkle always did and always took his phone calls and seemed to always have time for Pat. And it seemed like he did that with a lot of UFO abductees. Then there's the other camp um, who is very much convinced that he played no small part in the destruction of my father's life in the fact that his land was taken from him and the fact that the university now then owns that land who Leo Sprinkle worked for. And that he stuck around to ensure that the 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 situation remained the same. Those are the two camps in my family. And in all honesty, as I go through my research, it's hard to 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 put always put myself on one side of those camps. What I can say is that it appears through my research and interviews that the situation with the UFOs on the ranch was very grounded. <laughs> and, pun, not pun included, whatever, right? Yeah. And, right, yeah. yeah. Is that he was seeing UFOs, and UFOs were landing, and there was people who were seeing these with him. And then there is, there is the time after Leo Sprinkle where this turns into prophecy and God and, and the end of the world. And that's not to say, I will say that my father, from some reports, had incredible striking moments of deja vu mm-hmm. gr- growing up and through his life, where he would he would say that in these moments of of almost like disorientation of like seeing seeing the world in and, and not describing it as like the future, not like he's seeing the future, but that you know, in those feelings of deja vu where it feels like the the future and the now are so familiar mm-hmm. that you could swear that it's it's come before that his were times that by ten is that this is how he described these these moments of like crazy deja vu. But then those moments definitely multiplied even further than that after hypnosis. I know you have your thoughts on hypnosis, so I'd love to hear them, but uh, through some of the research I've done, is, is it feels like uh, hypnotic regression is not 100% understood on how it engages with someone's psyche, and that there are, there could be like epigenetic, you know, precursors or or 
um, some aspects that, you know, maybe he, you open up these things when, when you're going back in someone's psyche, like that kind of tickling around in someone's, someone's past. And that might've just opened up the Pandora's box and maybe Leo Sprinkle didn't know. And he was just working on the best evidence at the time. And hypnotic regression was very popular with UFO abductees at the time. And, and maybe he's just going along with that ride to some extent. He's a psychologist, you know, a trained psychologist. He, he does this a lot, but you know, if, if, if I'm to, you know, flex my conspiracy muscle for a minute, it, I mean, it could be with the other camp of my parents or my family says where there is, there's some very strange interactions going on with the institution and Leo Sprinkle and my father. Yeah. There's, there's definitely that conspiratorial side, but like, I, I tend to wonder, did, did, Leo Sprinkle ever recommend, hey, you need to get into some counseling or hmm. you need to get into because I know he, you know, did see psychologists that gave him kind of a clean bill of health through hmm. the University of Wyoming um, when Leo Sprinkle was early on in the in the phase of hmm. um, uh, working with him. But it's like, did he ever do the ethical thing and say, hey, get your ass into therapy? You need it. <laughs> yeah. um, I never found evidence of Leo Sprinkle sort of directing that. I found evidence of my father going to different counselors mm -hmm. um, later on in, in his life. I would say that from, from my judgment, then this is sort of just speculating is that Leo Sprinkle probably would say that he didn't do anything wrong. Looking back, at least I didn't get that from, from, you know, a lot of the things that I read and went through is that um, he never, it wasn't like he came to a point where he thought hypnotic regression was a bad thing and he shouldn't have been doing that to people. Um, and I don't want to cast that gavel either. Cause I don't, I mean, I will say, you know, I'm no psychologist. I don't understand it. He certainly understood it more than I do. I mean, mm -hmm. he practiced it for decades. Right. So I, I have to imagine that he had a better grip with it um, than even I could, I could level, but it's hard. And I think you can maybe agree. It's hard to look at my father's case and not see the right turn that this mm -hmm. sort of takes um, post post Leo Sprinkle. And and maybe my father was really happy about that. I don't know that um, I know a lot of some alien abductees at least feel very freed after their hypnotic regression because they mm -hmm. can finally recount what happens to them. And maybe that's the therapy that they need to, to sort of digest what happened to them, even if it, you know, is sort of laced with in inaccuracies, depending on how you want to gauge those inaccuracies. So in the, in the book, you call them them specifically. Mm. Um, you don't call them aliens. You call them them. I'm I'm curious. Have you ever had any kind of strange experiences of your own? Yeah, uh, a running theme through the book is I, I I mean it is difficult. It's very difficult for me to 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 handle as I'm going through and researching my father's stories and I'm seeing all of this stuff that is, is the same, a lot of the same things that I went through um, to, to give you a direct example. I mean, literally last week I woke up screaming because I'm screaming to my wife that there are children running around my room. I know that the scientific community calls these hypnagogic or hypnogogic. I can't remember which one mm -hmm. uh, hallucinations. But I, I mean, I will tell you 100%, I sleep with the light on <laughs> because this, that those experiences are difficult. And I know my father talks about, talked about this quite a bit. 
is 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 seeing them waiting for him in the room hearing them in the other room um and i know that's all wrapped up in sleep paralysis and a lot of our um scientific understanding for those things but it feels this this is one thing through all my research is for someone like richard mcdally the the famous harvard researcher for him for them to be like oh this is sleep paralysis um here take some valerian root and get some exercise um it feels the feeling of that stuff is so much more visceral than than what they what they sort of try to band-aid over that working back backwards now you know growing up we <laughs> this is going to sound strange we saw the stars move almost like he asked them to do so <laughs> that mm-hmm. sounds insane i know that sounds yeah. insane um and and out in basler i described this to some degrees i can't sit here and say 100 percent, just like a lot of ufo um see uh experiences i can't say 100 that that is an extraterrestrial vehicle flying around this abandoned land of wyoming but i can say that that you know very strange occurrences happened out there in wyoming and there are many people within my family and outside of my family that experienced very similar things. And I won't sit here and say that 100%. I know that my father's abduction went down just how he says it went down. Um, I can't say that for sure. But I can say 100% for sure that the the things that other people say were happening, you know, the stars, um, you know, moving and coming to his ranch. It's a lot of that stuff 100% did happen. Um, and, and sometimes it happened without him there. And sometimes it happened with him there, which probably led to the intense belief my mother's had and that I had when I was young, that, the, that these, that the end of the world was coming. <laughs> so, yeah. Pat was also hypnotized for Linda Moulton Howe's documentary, A Strange Harvest. Northwest of Laramie, Wyoming, lives a rancher farmer named Pat McGuire. His father and grandfather were Wyoming ranchers. He settled down here in 1972 with his wife and eight children. In September 1976, on a ridge about two miles from his trailer house, Mr. McGuire, his brother, and his cousin, Mark Murphy, found two mutilated cows. The following hypnosis session with Dr. Leo Sprinkle, Director of Counseling and Testing at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, is Pat McGuire's effort to recall more details about an extraordinary incident that happened to him at the time of the mutilations. Dr. Sprinkle is one of the world's leading authorities in cases involving UFOs and human abductions. He has personally worked with 47 people since 1967. Pat McGuire was his 28th case and the first concerning cattle mutilations. Whenever you're ready, just go right ahead. You can talk and describe your experiences. It's Sunday. It was me and me and Marks. Was driving around checking the cows. Come upon a, a cow that was dead. They cut the nose off, tongue was out, 
the sex organs were gone. Oh, I said, my brother, one brother said it must have been from a sex cult from the university out here messing around. I says, probably was. I says, we'll catch him yet. Okay, Pat, you're doing fine. I'd like to have you uh, now turn your attention to the, uh, the uh, evening that you and Mark were looking at that craft. You were looking through the scope. I says, Mark, I said, let's get the hell out of here. I said, that star's coming. I says, either that or my eyes are bad. He says, it's coming. It changed from an, uh, changed from a pure white to an orange. I says, Mark, son of a, it picking, it picking up a cow. I says, yeah. Hear that cow? Hell, she's bawling. And it seems to be hovering there over the ridge. Right, hovering, mm -hmm. picking up the cow. And can you see the cow? No. But you can hear the cow? Right, terrible. Terrible, bawling? It's mm. terrible. Worse than I ever heard a cow. Mm-hmm. I've heard a few. Mm-hmm. Okay, then what And happened? all of a sudden, uh, like they threw a valve or a switch. Everything stopped. The craft is still there. The cows was wasn't a wasn't no ball. No sound from the cattle. No, nope. oh. it's like it's through a switch. Hmm. Weird. Back of my neck, hair on the back of my neck was straight up. Hmm. The next day, you said you drove over there. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you what, what do you find when you drive over? Oh, we didn't go over there till ten o'clock in the morning. We waited till it was damn good daylight. Mm -hmm. well, we weren't taking a chance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We went and looked all over along the side of the hill. All we found was there was another cow in two miles, just a lone calf, bawling for its mom. I said that they took her. Mm. We never found her. Never did find her. Mm. <laughs> I've drawn a picture of the of the spacecraft, what I seen that night, and uh, the ridge was 300 feet, uh, and the tip stuck above the ridge, and uh, that would give you a, a size of a football field. And uh, as it proceeded from the uh, down from the sky, it was a pure white, with of course the flashing red and yellow and blue lights. And then it turned to a 4S orange, the whole ship did. And it stays this color, and of course it'll glow the whole area up right around where the cow was. The area was uh, uh, deep red, and, and that's where you could hear that cow beller. I've never felt like Leo Sprinkle was a neutral figure in Pat's story. In doing this series on UFO disinformation, it has forced me to question his character more and more. Here's a quote from him in a local Wyoming paper about Pat. Quote, I believe that the craft appearing over Pat McGuire's farm could be the goodwill ambassadors of an alien civilization, said Dr. Leo Sprinkle, a UFO expert and parapsychologist with the University of Wyoming. The area around the farm may become the showcase for an overall get acquainted program, which will lead to full scale landings over the next 10 years or so. End quote. 
As you can see, the man was just a straight up true fucking believer. It can't be overlooked that the Yom Kippur War, the Star People, as Pat referred to them during hypnosis, and Michael the Archangel, none of this was part of the story until Leo Sprinkle showed up. I will keep emphasizing that. At a certain point, would Pat's story have gone the way that it did had he not showed up? That's tough to say, but we haven't fully told that story yet, so let's keep going on. Pat's story drew headlines from all over Wyoming. He was featured in a television segment by California journalist John Major. The National Enquirer wrote a piece titled Farmer, Aliens Use My Ranch as Their Landing Place. But the biggest draw came from an appearance on NBC's That's Incredible, where he was placed under hypnosis by Leo Sprinkle live on air. Uh, if anyone has a copy of that footage, David has been searching for quite a while um, to find it. Uh, if you could email him, it would be much appreciated. His email is dreidel12 at gmail.com. That's spelled D-R-I-E-D-E-L 12 at gmail.com. Now, Pat grew barley. He was planting crops practically 24-7 and had planned on selling to the Coors Company. Unfortunately, his crops failed to pass a quality inspection and he was forced to give up the farm as he wasn't able to make his interest payments. Now, according to some family lore, as it has been handed down to me by David, Pat wrote some bad checks. And there is a conspiracy tied into this. He supposedly had some money that he borrowed from the bank in his account. And according to some, this money had been tampered with. There were other reports that tell of mysterious figures showing up at the ranch and tampering with some of the equipment. He supposedly got the license plate of one car that contained two men that were driving away from the Wagwire Ranch. When they ran the plates, they were registered to an elderly woman in Colorado. Pat ultimately lost the ranch in late 1982 while he was running for governor of the state. That wasn't the end of the story, though. A cult would ultimately form up from Pat's beliefs. Here's David on what it was like growing up in that cult and also the beliefs of that cult. So you certainly don't call it a cult growing up. I feel like that's pretty typical with people who are from cults is they never mm -hmm. they never look at their situation and say like, yeah, that's that was 100 percent a cult I was in. Um, and, and that's similar, similar to, to my story is growing up, um, first to get it out of the way, we, I sort of grew up, not sort of, I did grow up in a, uh, polygamous <laughs> sister wives situation in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. And this polygamous situation was sort of the genesis of that was with Pat McGuire, my father. And that that quote unquote tradition carried on after Pat sort of fell on some really hard times and ends up and he ends up homeless in the town of Laramie, Wyoming, as the the sole homeless person in that town. And obviously everybody in that town knows Pat's story in in sort of the late 80s as it starts to kind of fall apart. Um meanwhile, I was born in 1986 and um we're living in Basler, which is an old railroad town that's 
more or less abandoned at this point. The The population was truly just our family. And I have eight brothers and sisters slash cousins, if you will. And we're, we're sort of raised with knowing that 10 miles east of Basler, that when the end of the world comes, that that's where we need to be. That Pat's well, that um, he dug um, miraculously is, is going to sort of nourish the last of humanity through the end times, through like a climate catastrophe. And we, we are, we are sort of sticking around for it. It, it, And at times it's interesting because sort of that more or less that goal wasn't always stated so clearly, Mm -hmm. um, as, as is often the case, the, the chaos and, and sort of abuse and alcohol and all of these things sort of muddle the message, but more or less we remained out in Basler by some weird confluence of fate and and Pat and aliens and all of it mixed together to make sure that that we were ready when it came. Um, and some of that some of that drifts away as we get older and not not maybe not purposefully by my mothers and and stepfather and everything but i think it's sort of it sort of wilts as as time goes on that that ceases to be the focus so much um my mother doesn't live out in Basel anymore but um my sort of aunt mother does and my stepfather does still and so we all pretty much live within the area though still my eight brothers sisters and cousins reading about it it felt very small it felt very um cramped it it felt like a very it felt like the most rural isolation that i've you know kind of like really read about because like i looked it up you know i i just did like a google search on bosler and i was like oh that's not that's that's really like nothing on the map it's it's like barely you know this is barely anything there um i'm curious because and i don't know how to put this like in any in in a kind way but the story with you is that your parents moved out to bosler after you were born is that correct yeah what sort of ends up happening is when i'm born i i if if people will probably notice i don't have pat's last name um and that was sort of by design pat seemed to at some point in time become more or less convinced that i was kind of what the community calls an an hybrid and that his last name could not be tied to me otherwise authorities would find out and a year after i'm born my mother sort of gets cast out the the polygamous cult kind of falls apart in its original conception and i really have trouble explaining this mm-hmm. my mom's living in laramie pat's living in laramie um my aunt's living in laramie and the sister wife cult in laramie pat's already lost the ranch at this point in time and he's he's fighting to get it back and and running for governor at the same time <laughs> and she sort of gets cast out. It falls apart, as many would guess. 
and it's the strangest i it, i really have trouble explaining how this works my mother and i are living in a trailer that doesn't have heat um and just has electricity and it's the worst imaginable situation you can think of for a single mom and she she even has trouble explaining how this happens she hates it for like a moment living in this trailer and she goes and gets an apartment and she happens to meet the one person who's still living in Basler. She moves out of this apartment. They court each other and then they sort of move back out into Basler where then my mom brings my aunt to Basler to sort of restart this, um, this cult more or less. And now we are closer to Pat's Ranch than even Pat is. And, and we sort of waited out from then in this abandoned town that's like right next to his land. It's it's such a weird thing to me because it is like the main figure of this cult is no longer part of it. Yeah. And yet it reforms into something else. It's like nothing I've ever really read before. What What was it that your mother believed in in your in your your aunt mother what did what was it that they believed like the the interesting thing about pat's story is that uh and and we'll get into this 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 figure in in a little bit but um after he goes through hypnosis like he comes through with this story about uh protecting israel and like it becomes a very religious thing what was the primary belief of this cult? Because I, 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 I even don't, I don't really know. And I, and I don't even know if it's easy to, uh, to put across, but what was it that they all believed in, um, in this cult? You want me to start with like how his abduction sort of the message is given through the abduction? Yeah. Go right ahead. Yeah. So during the abduction after after leo sprinkle hypnosis um pat understands his abduction as taking place with michael the archangel mm. um now this this figure kind of morphs over the years from just an extraterrestrial as as we sort of imagine them to be pretty close to to being a full-out angel um and michael the archangel explains to pat that he is he is needed for several junctions in in time and and now being one junction in time the israel thing being another junction in time yeah and this junction he needs to purchase land in a certain section of land just next to basler and that they will set this land up to be a safe haven during the apocalypse pat purchases this land with everybody telling him that it, it truly is worthless because it's got no water. Wyoming says a high plains desert. Um, it has no water, so he gets it cheap. And everybody calls him crazy because you can't really farm a ranch on a piece of land with no water. He ends up striking the largest artesian well in, in sort of the region. Uh, and he understands this as, as Michael the Archangel, that they instruct him that they're bringing the water to this land. Then he... This the, it sort of continues. The prophecy continues that he's supposed to marry three women 
and have kids with them and that this this sort of sect was supposed to um be ready for the end times and he meets my aunt she's a college student going to the university of wyoming he meets her she's a waitress at a place where he gets coffee and she sort of brings my mother from colorado to come stay with them where they're sort of they become convinced of this story from him this this abduction prophecy and they start having kids and while they're uh they're doing this kid thing they're they're handing out flyers um out as as this sort of prophecy moves forward it becomes very wrapped up in abortion and the sort of the politics of the time to some degree they're they start you know uh stashing food for the end times in a cave pat's battling with the government to to re get his land back and they my mother and aunt totally buy this a hundred percent they're sending letters to reagan warning him of this they're sending letters to ted kennedy um everything that you would expect a very fundamentalist uh religious people um that the the aliens michael the archangel have warned what was coming and that that land was was very valuable to to all of humanity not just the government it wasn't until much later that david found out that he was indeed pat's son i didn't find out pat was my father till i was it was probably about nine or ten um and at that point in time i didn't know who my, who my father was it was a it was a family secret <laughs> Um, but I used to go with my, what I thought were like my cousins at the time I used to go and hang out with Pat and I didn't really understand like why I was being included, but we would, we would go to hang out with him for the day and we would pretty much do what he was doing that, that day. Sometimes it was very, just very normal stuff, you know, going to a restaurant or, um, going back to an apartment he would have at the time. And then other times it was when he was truly homeless it was picking cans with him it was walking miles upon miles upon miles around the town mm -hmm. um and i i truly did not think that that was out of the ordinary i know that's very common for people who yeah. who report coming from those situations but um i will say that my home existence in Basel was incredibly abusive yeah and escaping Basler was a gift. And so it almost didn't matter what we were doing with Pat. It was a true blessing <laughs> to be digging through dumpsters. And a lot of times that's how we, that's how we felt about it. Or I'll speak for myself. That's how I felt about it is that it was, it was awesome um, to go hang out with Pat. You know, as I got older in my teens, um that wasn't the case it, it definitely felt much more like a chore and i feel like that's probably fairly common but yeah i didn't think anything out of the ordinary was happening and neither did the people around town or the people my classmates um in small towns are sort of like that the expectation everybody knows sort of what your business is mm -hmm. so they didn't treat us as if we were doing something out of the ordinary they also felt like that was very ordinary for the situation I ended my interview with David with a strange question. One of the things that you wrote is that, uh, quote, to, to fault 
anyone is to fault Pat. I do not fault Pat. I fault the phenomenon for somehow dragging us all there. I fault them for what happens to people when they come knocking and reality no longer holds and new reality must be built in its absence. If you could tell them anything like right now, if they, if they were listening right now, what would you tell them? I mean, I would tell them to leave me out of it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, um, cause that's, that, that is how it's, it's always felt to some degree is that the way Pat described them and their plan, he would talk about their plan all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that in his hypnosis sessions, the aliens would tell, um, or they, right. They would mm-hmm. tell him the, about the plan and that he, you know, doesn't need to know about this part or doesn't need to know about that part. It, you know, it, it's funny because I think selfishly, I, I want to say that they don't understand the consequences of what's happening mm-hmm. and, and how far those consequences go. But to to more to the point of the plan is maybe maybe they do understand the consequences of their actions and that that all of this very, very much is is in line with what's what's supposed to be happening with those actions. You know, it, it, it very much borders on this like the religious god thing right is is to say like how dare you is is to only say like well you don't know the plan <laughs> right mm-hmm. like yeah. um you know or or this is part of the plan this your your suffering is just one part of this and and i'm sorry that you have to suffer but this is part of the plan um there was one he used to say this quite a bit is that the the alien at one point told him that you're going to wish that you were dragged to the streets of Laramie by a horse and cart at, because what you're going to have to go through is way worse than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's like that suffering is almost built in. So, so to some extent is, is, yeah, you know, I hate to cop out, but you know, I sort, I, I want to push this story out and sort of compartmentalize this and deal with this to some extent. And then hopefully focus on things that, you know, he didn't focus on, right. He didn't focus on his kids. Um, and, and his family life, he was completely, you know, wrapped in this to, you know, complete fault. Right. Um, but you know, I don't fault him because I can only imagine what, what that can be like and, and how does somebody operate and, and fill out a checkbook afterwards? Yeah. I don't know that you can. So, so maybe it's, you know, um, but to reiterate they could leave me out of it if they want to that'd be great (laughs) yeah because like why in the hell would a bunch of aliens really want to fuck up some dude's life and Mm. you gotta think about that at the end of the day is like regardless of what you take away what anybody takes away from this episode why why pat why this well why Mm. anything why why torment a guy for his entire life to you know watch like everything's basically stripped away from him to Mm. for what especially after you know if the main thing is is like hey you've you've got to build this well and you've got to maintain this land so that when the end times come people will have some place to go and then you lose that someplace why do the aliens care after that? You know, there's, mm. it's a very, it gets down to the idea that like, it seems like in most alien encounters, when you read about them, they don't know 
what it's like to be human. So hmm. they don't know how to treat people and, yeah. and you know, and, and stuff like that. And like it, this, this story is about how in, in many ways of this phenomenon can ru ruin people. It can, um, it can it, it can really ruin lives and it has like uh we, we we've seen it with uh you know there's been countless police officers that have lost their jobs because of the mm. stuff there are you know people who have you know lost their livelihoods and stuff like that so as much as this is a story about one man's interactions with whatever this is it's also the story of how seems like it can go too far in, in certain ways and like really it can almost strip away the humanity of someone in many mm. ways i'm glad that his story is getting out there and and i'm glad that we can play somewhat of a role in that because i you know one thing that uh that you that you said in your book is like no podcast has covered that so um how does it feel to have a podcast now? Yeah. <laughs> I, I gotta be honest. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of thinking like it's the rings thing that if I can take this tape and I can mm -hmm. pass it off to you, that maybe I can go on yeah. and, and live a much more normal life, knock on wood and, yeah. and, and somehow put, put some of this behind me and, you know, maybe that's part of the plan and I'm just doing my part and, and now it's in everybody else's lap and I can, you know, watch Seinfeld like everybody else. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, you know, one of, one of the things that you, you kind of got across in, in your writing is that like part of the reason, like a lot of the reason that you're doing this is to like, you know, kind of figure out, you know, who your dad was and, mm -hmm. and, and all this stuff. And like, I could relate to that because um, you're like three years younger than me. Um, mm. We we both lost our dads around the same age. I was 24 when I lost mm. mine. You were what 23? Yeah, yeah. Um, if I'm doing the math right. <laughs> yeah, my dad he passed two years before yours did, mm. and um, there were a lot of things that I could relate to, like, um, your dad was a little more larger than life than mine was. Mine was very well known in like my town because he was in radio for like 25 years. So, you know, his voice was, hey. uh, you know, well, well known around town, but, uh, you know, there were a lot of, I could see a lot of similarities in your dad's story and like mm. my dad's story. And, um, I think it's, uh, you know, good for both of us that we have, you know, come together to do this. So, yeah. Um, the last question that I have for you is that um, at the end of this all, at the end of this episode, at the end of everything, because like, it's almost like to tell your dad's story it is like, you know, an exorcism in its own way to get it out there. And, and like, uh, especially for the way that it's affected you over your life, it's, you know, it's had a it's had a great effect on you, you know, like it's, it's not, you know, that's, you know, obvious at this point, but like at the end of all this, um, how do you want the listeners to perceive your father's story and what do you want them to take away from it? Yeah. I think if I, if I had any requests from anybody, um, interacting with 
Pat McGuire's story. Um, it would be to maybe not do what I have done in the past and Dave Politis does um, is to sort of take his story and find one theme and then set it aside and say, that's the theme of that story. Cause if there's anything I've discovered by doing the research and the interviews and re-examining how like I existed with him is, you know, just like so much of with the phenomenon is it's, it's hard to find definition and there might be aspects of his story that, very much matter and maybe some parts that don't, but um, to sort of do the looking into and, and understand that his story is like complex and nuanced in that uh, it doesn't, it's not a cookie cutter story. Um, like some UFO tales try to make these stories mm-hmm. into like a kind of fit into a box. Um, like so many of these stories, it doesn't. And so that's kind of what I would say is, is if you go to learn more, um is and there you know there's a lot more to learn it's i i hope that someone out there finds things within his story that say that they say oh man david missed it because this has an implication to this or this has Mm -hmm. a connection to this and and i feel like that gives it not only does it give me greater understanding but more more freedom to sort of let it go and let it like exist kind of outside basler wyoming Regardless of how you feel about Pat and David's story, these kinds of stories are important to tell. And as David put it in his article, quote, We should feel impelled to investigate and rescue a community living with the trauma of the unknown and indescribable. A community we greeted with sneers and derision for so long. A community we pushed to the outskirts of our cultural limits to be safely ignored. If it is all true or it is all lies and sickness, we should approach both valuations with care and considerations, even skepticism, but not with the intense ridicule so many of us have given them for so long. Or, as Dr. J. Allen Hynek put it, ridicule is not part of the scientific method, and the public should not be taught that it is. Thank you so much for listening. A huge thank you to David Rydell for his kindness, openness, and for his faith in me to tell this story. He also supplied a lot of research material um, that I was able to use to uh, make this episode. So thank you again. Special thanks to my friend Amelia Lanier for research assistance and to my good friend Lindsay for helping me mentally write this episode. Sometimes you need someone to believe in you to help you believe in yourself. Thank you. The day this episode drops is Pat McGuire's birthday. Happy birthday, Pat. I hope they keep telling your story. On Friday, the full interview that I did with David Rydell will be released on the main feed. There's some additional stuff in it that was not used for this episode, so you don't want to miss it. Uh, It'll be up on Patreon earlier than that if you are so interested in uh, listening to it early you can find the our strange skies podcast on most podcasting apps if you want to follow us on social media buy that merchy merch 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 and find the link to our patreon page head on over to ourstrangeskies.com this is your reminder we have a really good resource resource page over there so if you are interested in um researching ufos and stuff Go check out that resource page. There's a lot of great stuff there. 
I have a P.O. Box if you want to send me stuff. It's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. Uh, special thanks to Easton Hawk. I appreciate you, dude. <laughs> that care package was phenomenal. Thank you. As always, you can check out Welcome UFO People, the webcomic that Todd Purse and I make on Instagram at Welcome UFO People and Twitter at Welcome UFO Peeps. We also have high-res images available on each of our Patreon pages. And we still have 8x10 prints available of our first seven issues. You can get yours at createmagicstudios.com. Our Strange Skies is a production of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO as the theme for this podcast. Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg. And the great Desdemona is behind many of our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up. Because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. Or hovering over the McGuire Ranch, 10 miles east of Bosler, Wyoming. In gray, we trust. <laughs> Yeah.